Let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation chapter 12. Have you ever wanted to sit in on a strategy meeting with the president and his top aides? You could probably watch C-SPAN 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you would never be able to find out what goes on in those meetings. But suppose you were elected as the Secretary of Defense, or you're chosen to be the Secretary of Defense. Not only would you be able to sit in on those meetings, but you'll be able to take part in the conversation. It's similar to the conversation that Abraham had with God when he revealed himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. We've been looking at it on Sunday nights. Abraham is able to hear about this coming destruction on Sodom. It's an amazing thing that God would include a mere human in a conversation about what goes on within the universe. And here in Revelation chapter 12, God is letting you in if you're careful to listen on some secrets. He's letting you in on some secrets of the universe that very few people know about. At the end of chapter 11, John was taken into the throne room of God in the most holy place. This is the place where God resides. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is and God is there. So God is is letting us in to the window of His of His majesty, of His greatness, of His plan, in a sense. This is something that doesn't happen very often in the Scriptures. People don't get to have one-on-one meetings with God in all of His glory. They usually have to hide themselves before God, or God comes in some form, like in a burning bush, or in the form of Jesus Christ Himself, His Son. But here, John, at the end of chapter 11, is starting to get a window into what God is doing in the world. Specifically, what's going to go on in the the end times, the tribulation. And so if you're a believer and you have the the grid of interpretation because the Holy Spirit helps you in that way, if the the Holy Spirit helps you and you stay alert this morning, then you'll be able to see more clearly what God is doing in this world and specifically in your life. And so I'd encourage you to give your attention to this passage this morning. I asked you to read through chapter 12 several times last week. I hope that you did that. It will be a great benefit to you today if you did. Verses 1 through 6 we looked at last week. So let me begin with verse 7 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. 
And so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. God gives us a window through the Apostle John into the very secrets of this world, into why things happen as they do. In verses 1-6, through which we looked at last week, I want to give a little summary. That was an earthly conflict between Satan and Israel in history. Do you remember how he was viewed there in verses 5 and 6? He's viewed as standing before the woman. Do you remember who the woman represents? Israel, right? So he's standing before the woman as she's about to get birth. And what did he try to do to that child? Tried to devour the child, verse 6 says. And that child, of course, we know is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is a child of the nation of Israel. Okay, and I argued that that was the woman there is speaking of the nation Israel. And the dragon, of course, is Satan. So Satan standing before the nation of Israel trying to devour the very Son of God because he felt as if, if he could thwart God's plan there, then he would overthrow God. He would become God. So this is a very important time in human history. Prior to that, it talks about in verse 4 where he took a third of the angels with him. So when uh, Satan was at one time one of the holy angels, was he not? And yet he fell from the earth. Everything that God made was good. But he fell from the heavens, I should say. He fell from the heavens because of his sin. And with his sin, he took one-third of the angels with him. And so Satan probably thinks he's making some progress. He's taken the angels with him. He's now killed the Christ, right, at the crucifixion. He kills the Christ. So he probably thinks he's, he's making some progress. Of course, we know that the Christ, as we just sang, did not stay dead, but instead he rose from the grave and he now lives for us. For us. And so we could say that Satan's success is limited to the purposes of God. That God is more powerful than Satan. And although Satan put in the minds of angry men to destroy the Christ, God was not reacting when he rose Jesus from the grave, was he? God knew that was going to happen. In fact, he planned it. Isaiah 53.10 says that the Lord God was pleased to crush him, the Son. There was pleasure that God took, not because God's an evil God and he likes people uh, being punished or, or judged, but because he knew that the judgment that went on the Son would relieve us from that judgment, those of us who believe. So it pleased God. He planned it. It was part of His plan. And because of that plan, we can receive salvation. So we have, in verses 1-6, through we have the conflict between Satan and Israel in history. Now we skip ahead. In verse 7, we skip ahead all the way to the time of the tribulation, which is what we're studying about here in chapter 6-19. through The time of the tribulation. When there's a conflict in heaven, notice verse 7, because there's a conflict between Michael and Satan. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. Okay, So you have Michael and his angels waging war against Satan and his angels. Dragon, we said, was Satan according to verse 9. Now, who is Michael? Michael, of course, is known as the archangel or could be one of several archangels, but at least he is an archangel. That's what we know from Jude chapter 1, verse 9. And if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, you would find that one of his main purposes, Michael, is to protect the nation of Israel. He is designed, he is set up in his position to protect the nation of Israel. And so what you see is... Verses 1 through 6, Satan conflict with Israel past. Now, verses 7 and following, we start to see uh, a conflict between Satan and Israel up in heaven, though. Okay? He, he's, trying, he's conflicting, he, he's, he's, uh, he's uh, opposing Michael over something with regard to Israel because Michael's main job seems to be to protect the Jews. And the reason that I know that this happens, 
during the tribulation, and I'll argue for the midpoint of the tribulation, is because verse 7, this is very basic, very elementary, verse 7 follows verse 6. Okay, look back at verse 6 with me. Then the woman, who is the woman again? Do you remember? Israel. Okay, so then Israel fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. When does Israel flee to the wilderness? At the midpoint, right, of the tribulation. And then, following that, she's going to be nourished for 1,260 days, which works out in a Jewish calendar to three and a half years. Okay, that's half of the tribulation. So, the Jews there, Israel, is designed to be protected. Now, why do they need to be protected? We're going to see here why. Because Satan's coming after them. But also, you remember that we talked about last week, Satan set up a, a, a throne for himself through the Antichrist. The Antichrist begins his reign, really, at the midpoint of the tribulation. He, he of course, comes at the beginning of the tribulation, but he's only a, a little horn. He's a smaller figure in, in history and power. He's, he's probably a Jew. He comes, but, but he makes his power known to all when he, chapter 11, destroys the two witnesses. Remember the two witnesses that were sent from heaven? They were able to breathe fire from heaven in order to kill their opponents. Well, apparently what happens is that the Antichrist kills those two witnesses. And because the people of the earth, the pagans of the earth, hated those two witnesses so much, they exalt him to a place of worship. And so he, he also takes over not only a religious uh, religious power, political power, but also economic power, doesn't he? Remember what people are going to have to do in the second part of the tribulation? You're going to have to get a mark of the beast if you want to do any commerce. And of course, uh, we'll learn about that in chapter 13. So, he has a hold on the market, we could say. And those who oppose him are put to death. So that's why the Jews need to, to flee to the wilderness. They have to somehow survive out there in the wilderness. And it's told to us in Scripture, verse 6, that she will be nourished for time, time, or, or excuse me, for 1,260 days, so for three and a half years. So at the point of her fleeing, we see that in verse 6, then follows this war in heaven, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. That's why I say verse 7 follows verse 6. So, after she flees at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Jews, then Satan and Michael and their angels wage war against each other in heaven. And they're waging war over the people of Israel. Now look at verse 8, because we see the result of this war, this battle in heaven between the dragon, Satan, and Michael. And they, that is the dragon and his angels, they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Later on in the verse it says, And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Whatever this battle was about, okay, likely something about the Jews, Satan lost. And God made the final verdict. He said, enough of this. You and your demons can go down from here. You're not allowed in here anymore. You're expelled from this second heaven. There are at least six stages of the life of Satan. I talked about the first one where he was a holy angel. He was with God. He was in the presence of God, worshiping God, serving for God. But then... He was thrown down from the third heaven shortly after creation. Remember before the fall. He was the one that tempted Adam and Eve, right? We see that in Revelation chapter 12. We saw that last week, verses 3 and 4. Here we see the third stage of his life. So first in heaven, then thrown down from heaven. But here he's actually thrown down from the second heaven. Okay, Before he was just not allowed in the third heaven where God exists. But, but since that time, since his fall... He has been excluded from that third heaven, but allowed to go into the second heaven. You remember with Job, right? He goes to God and says, of course Job's going to serve you. 
You give them all these things. So apparently God and Satan are having a conversation in the second heaven. There will be a fourth stage in Satan's life, and that will come in Revelation chapter 20, where he is thrown into the abyss. And he will be sent there as a, as a type of imprisonment during the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. It will be a great time on the earth. And Satan will be uh, in prison. But then he'll be released. And this is his fifth stage. He'll be released for a short time at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20, verses 7-9. through 9. He'll be able to um, have a little time of conflict, but it'll be short-lived because he will finally be thrown in his sixth stage into the lake of fire. So, we're at the third stage. Satan, as an angel in heaven... Satan removed to be the God, small g, of this world, able to still converse with God. Now we're at the third stage where he's no longer allowed in the heavens. No longer allowed to be where the angels are. There's no more uh, conflict of spiritual forces in heavenly places. It will be all on earth. And the result of this is found in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. Then I heard a loud voice, that is, after Satan and his angels were thrown down, heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. There's great praise in heaven because of this demotion, we could say, of Satan's power. This this uh, expulsion from heaven. These are probably martyrs praying to God. Remember in chapter 6, verse 10, they were praying for God's vengeance. When will you avenge our blood, God? When will you take vengeance for the people who have killed us, for the powers that have killed us? And now they say the kingdom has come. Now, they speak of it as if it is already here. They recognize that this is the midpoint of the tribulation. The kingdom hasn't technically come, but they see it as if it has already been done. We talked about that last week. We, we often speak in these types of terms or we act in these ways. I gave the example of a golf tournament where the crowd cheers for the, the leader going up to the final green even though he hasn't won the tournament. They cheer for him as if he has already won. and This is what the martyrs do. Notice what they call, and the reason I say that these are martyrs, look at verse 10. Notice what they call uh, the people who are being accused. The middle of the verse says, For the accuser of our brethren. Okay, so we're not talking about angels. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit or Jesus Christ. We're talking about other believers, likely uh, tribulation martyrs. Notice verse 12, because we know this is still future. The kingdom is still future at this time. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in in them. Woe to the earth and the sea. Now, if the kingdom were here, if the martyrs recognized that the kingdom was here now, would they say, woe to the earth and the sea? Won't that be a great time on the earth when Jesus reigns for a thousand years? There will be no woe when Jesus reigns. Okay, so we know that this is this kingdom is still future, but they praise God because we're one step closer. Satan and his demons have been expelled from heaven. They're no longer allowed to accuse God or accuse the believers before God. This is what Satan often did. He did this with Job. Job is not a righteous person. He only follows you for his gifts. God now expels Satan and his demons from heaven, so now he's only able to do one thing. He's only able to attack humans. He's not allowed to have these spiritual conflicts anymore with God or with the angels. And so they have what we could call an anticipatory celebration. They anticipate the kingdom that is so near. But the result of that, as we just read in verse 12, is that there will be an intensified earthly conflict between Satan and and Israel. There will be an intensified earthly conflict between Satan and Israel. And this happens at the second half of the tribulation. 
This will be the worst time in human history. We read a little bit about it in verses 13 through 17. Look at verse 13 because we see Satan's rage. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Notice the response of someone who is who whose final defeat is so near. He is filled with rage. Verse 13 says, he persecuted the woman at the end of the verse who gave birth to the child. He can't he can no longer persecute Christ. Christ is enthroned in heaven. He can no longer persecute the angels in heaven. He has to persecute the child or the woman of the one who gave birth to the child. And so since he can't destroy God's plan, since he can't overturn God's purpose, he seeks to do damage to the place, uh, the only realm he has left, the earth. The remaining believing Jews, specifically here, are going to see that it spreads to more. But initially it's just the 144,000 Jews. Notice, their protection in verses 14 through 16. The Jews are protected. It says, But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Let me stop there. Okay, Time, times, and half a time. Same language that's used in Daniel. And that refers to a period of three and a half years. Daniel there is talking about what he calls his 70th week. And each of his weeks are seven years long. Alright, so he says, when he talks about, Daniel talks about time, times, and half a time, he's talking about time, one year, times, two years, so now we have three years, and half a time, half a year. Okay, And that, that's very consistent with verse 6, where it says that she'll be nourished for 1,260 1, days. Three and a half years. Okay, We're talking about the same time period, and this is consistent with Old Testament prophecy. So let me continue because we see further protection of the Jews. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Apparently, the wings of the the wings are given to the woman in verse 14. Now what do wings typically signify in the scripture? Anybody have any idea? Let me read a verse for you and maybe this will help you. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. God speaking to Israel. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. What's the idea there? Isn't it an idea of protection? Of like the the, the, the eagle, the, the bird is, is covering over them in protection? You see, God is going to supernaturally protect Israel in the second half of this tribulation. But what Satan's going to do is he's going to, to try to torment them. He's trying to fill, fill, to use his rage against them. Verse 15, notice. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. What's going on there? Okay. Uh, it could be that he calls down rain, that Satan has the power to use natural catastrophes to bring about judgment on people. And there are instances in the Scriptures where he can do that. But it says that he poured it out of his mouth. Now, there's no reason for us not to take that literally because we have other examples of people spewing things out of their mouth and those things were literal. Can you think of one? The two witnesses. I just mentioned that earlier. Chapter 11, verse 5, where they where they spew out fire from their mouths. Remember the demonic horse, the horses? They were ridden by the horsemen. The horses were able to spew fire and brimstone out of their mouth and kill one-third of the earth's population. Do you remember that? So we have literal uh, fire coming out of the mouth. There's no reason that this couldn't be literal water coming out of Satan's mouth. But notice what God does in verse 16. But the earth helped the woman. Okay, and this is the wings that were talked about earlier, the wings of protection. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened the mouth, its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of its mouth. This will be quite a scene, particularly if you are one of the, if you were one of the 144,000 Jews. You would be in the wilderness, 
and all of a sudden you would see this great rush of a flood coming towards you to wipe you out, to destroy you completely. And the earth will be able to open up from the power of God and swallow the water, similar to how the earth opened uh, with the sons of Korah, remember, in, in Moses' time, and swallowed them up because of their uh, because of their sin. So there is protection. You see, Satan is no match for Israel. Satan's glory is only self-made. Israel's glory is connected to God's glory. And so believing Israel will be protected because the earth swallows it up. could be that an earthquake happens at that specific time, but again, I would argue that it's just a supernatural phenomenon that God brings about like He did with the sons of Korah. Notice verse 17, because now the conflict changed. First, it was between Satan and Michael. Right? Verse 7 is between Satan and Michael. Then he's thrown down. He can't, he can't have a conflict with Michael any longer. Then it's between Satan and these Jews spewing out the water. Now it turns to someone else. Verse 17 or some other group of people. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And this is Satan's rage against, I would argue, other Jewish believers. And what we're going to see by extension is that this is going to extend to Gentile believers as well, but it's primarily directed at other Jewish believers. And here's how, um, here's how I understand this. Look at, look, at, um, look at that phrase there in the middle of the verse. Make war with the rest of her children. So if the woman is Israel, who are her children? We could argue, we could ask. Okay, now that's that's kind of a difficult question because we could say in one sense, well, if the woman is Israel, then her children are the believing Gentiles. But uh, I would actually follow what my New Testament professor, Dr. Compton, argues for, and that is that the woman does represent national Israel, but there's a distinction here between Palestinian Jews which will include excuse me, Palestinian-dwelling Jews and the other Jews. In other words, they may not have all the revelation that the, the, the Jews, the scattered Jews, have. So the Palestinian-dwelling Jews during the time of tribulation will have this special revelation and will be able to understand that this is the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist sets himself up at the temple, that's when they're told to flee. So this is when the Palestinian Jews leave Israel. They leave, or excuse me, not Israel, but Jerusalem at least. Um, and so that would remain. That would leave all these believing scattered Jews outside of Palestine who didn't know that the abomination of desolation happened. Remember, you have to leave quickly. When that happens, you need to leave quickly. You can't even uh, pack your bags, so to speak. And so what I'm arguing for on the basis of my understanding, is that Satan will turn his attention to the other believing Jews that live out outside of, Bab of Palestine. And her children uh, may also include Gentiles, as I indicated earlier. That could be a possibility that we receive blessings and persecution as a result of our, our I guess we could say, our heirs, which is Israel, in a sense. Um, so that could be a possibility, but the text doesn't seem to talk about the Gentiles here at all. So, Satan has a war in heaven, he's expelled. Satan has a war against the Palestinian Jews, the, the 144,000 likely, and the, the flood that he tries to send is washed away. So now he makes an, uh, an incredible amount of rage, an incredible warfare against these other Jews. You know why that is? Because Satan knows that he is a defeated foe. And sometimes those are the most dangerous enemies. Don Carson reflects on the history of the Germans in World War II. The Germans were a vicious enemy in that war. The Allies were making headway. You remember the story of when in June of 1944 the Allies dropped 
one million people and large amounts of equipment on the on the uh, beaches of Normandy there. This really became the turning point in the war. Because at that point, Germany had not been taken, right? But it was all but defeated. There was way too many there were way too many resources from the allies on uh, nearby on the ground ready to attack and destroy. So the German forces hadn't been defeated. Their country still hadn't been invaded. The Allies were pretty much all but victorious. It was only a matter of time before the Germany would finally be destroyed. And you would expect at this point that the enemy would give up. Hey, I'm overmatched. I can't match these amount of troops. I can't match this amount of, of war, war equipment. But you know what it did for Hitler? It only fueled his desire to fight harder. It fueled his rage. And that's why you find probably the bloodiest battles of World War II at the very end. The Battle of the Bulge and the Battle for Berlin. Because Hitler knew he was a defeated foe. And so he sought to do as much damage as he could while he was going down. Believer, you need to watch out for Satan when he is filled with rage. When he knows that he's going to lose. Notice the end of verse 12. Having great wrath, speaking of the devil, knowing that he has only a short time. The devil knows he is a defeated foe. He will know it more clearly here in the tribulation. But when Christ raised from the dead was raised from the dead, that did some damage to the serpent. And so his rage is is has increased from the time before that. Do you remember how much demonic activity there was during the time of Jesus? You remember how how Satan himself came to tempt Jesus? You remember how many uh, people were demon possessed, and that Jesus had to to uh, remove those demons. Why was that? Is because Satan is standing there waiting to devour the Messiah, and one of the ways that he does that is he sends all of his forces down to try to destroy him, to try to destroy his purposes. And this is the type of activity that will be prevalent in the second half of the tribulation. Satan himself will come and tempt people. Satan himself will come and possess people. Satan himself will, will, will bring his forces and, and allow his, the demons to, to have free reign on the earth to do as they please. Obviously, understand that they, they have some limitations because God is still on, on the throne of the universe. Look at the end of verse 12. Actually, the middle of the verse it says, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down. Woe to the earth and the sea, because his wrath is great. He's turned his attention. He recognizes that there's only a short time. And now he's going to strike. And he's going to make it a bloody affair. And that's what we see in the judgments of the last half of the tribulation. Satan is a wicked creature. He's called the dragon in verses 7 and 9. He seeks to devour, verse 4. He's like a dragon who, who's breathing out fiery accusations against believers and against God. Verses 7 and 17 says that he wages war. Verse 13 says that he persecutes. Verse 9 tells us that he's called the serpent of old, devil, Satan. He deceives the whole world. He sends. He gives a deluding idea to what is reality. In verse ten, he's called the accuser of believers. But do you realize at this point in the tribulation, Satan no longer will be able to accuse believers. If you and I were on the earth, he would no longer be able to say, "You, that person, God, that person that you have on the earth, that believer down there, he's not worthy of your love." Satan can no longer do that in the second half of the tribulation. 
Instead, he will seek to accuse God before believers. And so if you were there at that time, he would be coming to you and saying, God is not worthy to be worshipped. God doesn't demand your praise. He just takes things from you. Look at how bad the world is right now. How can you serve Him? How can we be protected against such a creature? How can believers during the tribulation be protected against such a creature? Look at verse 8. And they, the dragon and his angels, were not strong enough. They're not strong enough. They have limited power. God has more power than Satan. Here's how believers overcome Satan. And I think this is true of all ages. Of all ages since the time of Christ. Look at verse 11 because this gives us the answer. How we overcome Satan. And they overcame him, that is the believers, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. There are two answers to that question. How do we overcome Satan? Number one, the blood of the Lamb. Literally, that verse could read, they overcame Him on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. So when Satan tempts me and says, Jacob, or when he tries to accuse me before God and says, Jacob, you're not worthy of God's Love, You're not worthy of heaven. You're a rotten, low-down, no-good, double-crossing sinner. You often stray from God. You're not worthy of God's love. My answer is not, actually, you need to think about all the good things that I've done. Let me pile up a list for you. Let me read off a list to you of all the nice things that I've done. I'm going to give that to you. That's not my answer. My answer is this first response to the rage of Satan, the blood of the Lamb. I am an overcomer not because of anything that I have done. I am an overcomer because of of Jesus Christ and His mercy and salvation. And that's the only way that you can be an overcomer too, through the blood of the Lamb. And so I say to you, don't ever get tired of of plunging into the depth of God's mercy at the cross when He struck His Son for you, when His Son took your place. Don't ever tire of that. The Gospel is still designed for you. It's one way that you can overcome Satan. You remember, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, Apollyon, which is the devil there, says to Christian. You almost fainted. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll, your Bible, and you almost turned back. You have an inward desire to bring glory to yourself, Apollyon tells the Christian. You know what Christian's reply is? He says, all this is true and much more that you have failed to mention. But the prince whom I now serve is honorable and is merciful and he's ready to forgive. That's your Savior. He's ready to forgive. It's not on the basis of anything that you have done. The second way that we overcome Satan is found in verse 11 as well. Because of the word of their testimony. And it says later that they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is not talking about our formal testimony in front of a church. This is how I got saved. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. Testimony can be translated as witness that believers give witness to the Gospel that it is real. That's why angels, Peter says, long to look into these things. They can't understand how God would come in the form of a human. God never came in the form of an angel. In other words, He didn't come to the angelic race and die for angels. They don't understand salvation and being bought and redeemed and forgiven. And and there are there are great ways that you can... Show your glory, show God's glory in overcoming on this life because there are angels and demons watching you right now. And when they see the church purified, they are amazed, both good and wicked angels. And I know that this is referring to the believer's witness because of the end of the verse. They did not love their life even when faced with death. This is one way believers testify about the beauty of the gospel. 
that this life is not all that there is to live for. We live for another life, and so you can take everything you want from this life from me. You can even take my life, but you can't take away my God. You can't take away my Savior. And so we're happy even when we are faced with death. You see, if Satan finally destroys our body, that's all he can destroy. The one we should fear is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. And when he does destroy us, we will have overcome. Paul says, to die is gain. We win. So it's not a bad thing to die. You can take everything away from me in this life, but you can't take away my Savior. You see... Satan is overcome by the power of the gospel, by the blood of the Lamb, and the the subsequent word of our testimony, the changed life that results from the blood of the Lamb. That's how Satan is overcome. That's what it says there. It says, for this reason. See that in verse 12? For this reason, rejoice. Satan has been overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Let me give you seven points of application as we conclude this study in Revelation chapter 12. Seven points of application. Number one, I mentioned this earlier so I won't spend a lot of time, but Satan's purpose is to thwart the plan of God. Satan's purpose is to thwart the plan of God because if he can overcome God's plan, if he can overturn God's purposes in this world, that he will have become God. His goal is to overcome the plan of God. And he thinks he's made some progress because he took a third of the angels. He destroyed the Christ. He's now persecuting believers. And at the tribulation, he'll cause great great amounts of death to occur on the earth. Satan's purpose is to thwart the plan of God. Number two, Satan has a passion about killing all Jews. Satan has a passion for killing all Jews. Now, at the end of the tribulation, that passion, that desire will be intensified. It will be unlike what it is now, what it has been in human history. And that's why the angels say, or the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the martyrs say, woe to those who live on the earth and the sea. How terrible of a time it will be. How woeful of a time it will be. Even though that's Satan's plan, God is still ultimately in control. Satan operates under the permission, under the universe that God created. Satan is a created being, right? So God still has control over him. And he is a defeated foe. Now, I began by saying that if you pay attention, you'd be able to get a window into the secrets of God's purpose in this life. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because so far all I've been talking about is the Jews. And I've been talking about the end times. I've sprinkled in some application as we've gone, but how does this apply to us today? We're not going to be in the tribulation period because the church is raptured. And we may die before that even comes. So there's no possibility that we could be in the tribulation. So how does this apply to us? What is this window into God's purposes. Remember what Satan was doing to the child? He's trying to devour her to devour him as he came out of the woman. As the nation of Israel bore Jesus the Christ, Satan was ready there to devour him. And at the end of time, in the tribulation, his devouring will be focused on the Jews. It will be intensified and he'll try to go after and devour the Jews. Notice in first Peter five verse eight whom he seeks to devour now. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary. Okay, Peter's talking to believers in the church. You church saints, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is seeking to devour you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today. The primary way that He seeks to devour you 
is by causing you to give up. Trying to cause you to give up. Getting you to believe that God is worthless. That He's not worth serving. That there are better things in this life to go after than God and His purposes. He's trying to get you, He's trying to devour you by getting you to become discouraged when you are tested. When tribulation comes, He wants you to give up and give up finally. He devours you by getting you to think that God is withholding His goodness from you. You see, Satan is an accuser. He accuses you before God and says, that person is not worthy of your love. That person is not worthy of your gifts. And he accuses God before you by saying, God is not worthy of your love. God is not worthy of your service. He wants you to give up. Maybe you're there right now today. Maybe you're at a place where I don't see what what the point of all this is. Why do I keep doing all these things for God day after day after day and nothing happens? Nothing changes. It only seems to get worse. What I'm telling you is that Satan wants you to give up. If you don't think that your God is good, if you don't think God has been fair with you, if He's treated you wrongly, mistreated you, then you don't understand the Gospel. You remember how believers overcome the devil? How? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. Go back to the cross. Be reminded about His love for you there. That He poured out His blood for you. You didn't deserve it. You were dead. You were His enemy. You were hostile towards Him. If you ever question God's goodness, remind yourself about Romans 8.32. He did not spare up His Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. So how would He not also with Christ freely give us all things? See, all the things that are coming into your life that you may see as mistreatment, unfair treatment, wrong treatment from God, those are good things. Those are the freely giving you all things. You say, well, I don't see that. What I'm arguing is that you don't see that because you don't see the cross. You don't see that God gave you the best gift He could give you. It's not the gifts on this earth. It's not the possessions, the power, the position. The best thing He could give you was Jesus Christ and His blood. That is how you overcome Satan and the doubts that you get. Look to the cross. Number four, don't despair. Don't be overwhelmed by guilt. Songwriter writes it this way. Her name is Charity Bancroft. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and for some reason pardon me. That is the beauty of the Gospel. Don't despair when you're filled with guilt. Jesus has taken all that on the cross. Number five, don't be, don't despair, or, or excuse me, don't be surprised at your suffering. Remember Jesus' words in John fifteen twenty. If they persecuted me, what? They will persecute you. Paul says it this way: All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. I don't know what kind of trials specifically you are going through today, but but if it's persecution, if it's a trial. In one sense, it's a gift from God, but in another sense, it should not be surprising to you because all believers go through this. Number six, recognize that Satan's time is short. His time is short. It won't be much longer before our King comes to reign. Do you believe that? Do you believe that our Savior is coming? Do you long for the next life? Do you recognize the next life? When you get to the next life, that is victory? Or are you more concerned with trying to build up your earthly treasures? 
the ones where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves can break in and steal. Is that where your treasure is? Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Finally, Satan is headed for defeat. Satan is headed or destined for defeat. He's a defeated foe. But he uses his rage in the short time that he has remaining to persecute you, to accuse God before you and accuse you before God. Listen to Romans 8, 37-39. I'll make this my conclusion. Paul says, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us an eternal perspective on these things. Help us to see the end times more clearly and our times more clearly so that we can know how we ought to serve You rightly. Lord, we don't, we don't acknowledge that we know everything. Our, our ways are not like Your ways. You are so unfathomable in Your power and Your wisdom. And so we don't, we don't claim to know everything that You know, but we do want to know what You have revealed to us Certainly this passage for us has been a challenge in one sense, but also an encouragement as we're able to see more clearly your purposes in this life and why you allow suffering, why you allow persecution, why you allow the wicked to prosper, sometimes and the righteous to suffer. We know that that's not an indication of your view of us, but rather it's it's what the whole creation is going through until that time when Christ restores the earth under His reign in the Millennial Kingdom. We long for that day. We long for the life to come. We long for Your presence. We long for these bodies and minds to be shed that are full of sin and despair, suffering, pain, sickness, dying. We long to shed these lives so that we can enjoy a glorified body in the life to come and a presence with You forevermore. May You fix our hope on eternal things today. And may we be reminded of these things often as we reflect on Your purposes. And may we defeat and overcome Satan not through our own works, but through the blood of the Lamb. Thank You for our Savior and for us being able to see His love more clearly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.